You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen. Well, go ahead and have a seat this morning. Uh, So good to be with you, Hope Niagara, today. Uh, in a scheduled way, okay? So, so not just like filling in with like, you know, a couple hours notice, um, but to actually be scheduled to be here to preach is a, is a very good and exciting thing. Um, so just to confirm, Pastor Ross is totally fine today. He's actually up in Peterborough with his family um, right now, um, up there visiting some family right now, and so this, this was planned this time around. Um, so I just want to invite you this morning, open up your Bible to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, we're going to take a step back from our series in Philippians this morning, and we're going to look at a, a one psalm in particular, Psalm 16, that really is, you know, maybe it's not great to pick favorite Uh, Psalms or favorite passages, but Psalm 16 is one of my favorites because I just believe that it is loaded. It is just loaded with so many little nuggets that just help us to hope in the Lord and encourage us in hope. So Psalm 16, Psalms is easy to find. It's right in the middle of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I would encourage you just look for one in one of the pews that's near you. And the reason that I would want you to open it up is because what we're going to do is we are just going to walk through this Psalm uh, one or two verses at a time. Instead of reading the entire Psalm right now, what I'd like to do is just uh, read a verse and then draw something out from it for us and help you just to focus on that. And I would encourage you, if you have a pen with you and you want to write these points down today, I would encourage you to do that. And the only reason that I warn you about that is because there's eight of them. Okay, there's eight of them. Normally, we're used to sermons that are like two or three points. Well, there's eight this morning. So we're going to go through them fairly fast. And the reason it would be great to write them down or to go back online after is so that you could actually look at these later on, pray through them, digest them, and be encouraged in your own heart. The message this morning is, out of, this, out of Psalm 16 is, is called this, How the Lord Leads His People in Hope how the Lord leads his people in hope. And so before we dig into this psalm, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I want to ask you this question first of all. Where do you go when you are brought low in life? What do you do when you're discouraged? Where do you turn when you're confronted with your own weakness, your own failure, your own insufficiency? Where do you go to find hope? Where do you go to find encouragement? I know that we would all answer, um, any of us who have grown up in church, any of us who would profess to be Christians would all answer, I, I, I go to the Lord. But if we're really honest, is that where we really turn immediately? Is that where we turn quickly? This morning, as I walk through this psalm with you, what I'm really asking the Lord to do in our hearts and lives is to show us the very good reason that we have to run to the Lord in difficult times very quickly, to make him our refuge, to make him our fortress. In fact, that's right where this psalm starts. In verse 1, we see that uh, David, the psalmist, writes these words. Uh, verse 1, he says, "'Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge.'" Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, the author of this psalm is, is King David, being led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, was led to write this psalm. Now, this psalm, Psalm 16, takes place in David's life at a very difficult and critical point in his life. Now, commentators are kind of split up a little bit as to when this was in his life, but the one thing that we know from Psalm 16 is this psalm was written during a time of intense trial in David's life, or right after a time of intense trial. It was written in a time in David's life when he was on the run from one of his enemies. Now, we're not positive which enemy that was, whether it was Saul, whether it was Absalom. Um, Those kind of commentators are divided a little bit on that, and that's okay. We don't need to know exactly. But what we do need to know is we need to know that this psalm came about during a time of intense difficulty and opposition in David's life. 
We need to know that before we get into it, because if we understand that, the words that David writes here are going to be very, very encouraging and very helpful and very hopeful for us. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 16, I'd just like to point out to you eight reasons how, or eight reasons why the Lord leads his people in hope, or eight ways that God helps us as believers in Christ to hope in him every single day. Eight ways that God helps us to hope in him every single day. And let's start out in verse two. But before we jump into verse two, let me just say something about verse one. Just look back to verse one, just for one second. Verse one says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I just want to say, that's the entire psalm. Okay, if you get verse one, then you get the entire psalm. In fact, if you get verse one, you really get the whole book of Psalms. You really understand what the book of Psalms is really all about. Um, But in order to understand verse one, we need to walk through the other verses because there are very specific ways that the Lord helps his people to hope. And so David says right off the bat, Lord, preserve me, for in you I take refuge. Uh, David is essentially saying here, God, you alone are my hope. As I look out at the world, I don't find a lot of sources of hope, but as I look to my God, he gives me hope. And so then into verse two, David writes this. Verse two, take a look at verse two. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my God. I have no good apart from you. The first way that the Lord leads his people to hope is that he reminds us that he is our righteousness. Okay, the first way that the Lord leads his people to hope is that he reminds us that he is our righteousness. Notice what David says. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Listen, David understood that his righteousness, even as the anointed king of Israel, was not based on anything within him. It did not come from inside of him. His righteousness was not something that was inside of him. His righteousness was a foreign righteousness. His righteousness was the Lord. And David makes this confession. He says, Lord, you are my my Lord. You are my God. I have no good apart from you. Um, This refrain is said several times in other places in Scripture. For example, the Apostle Paul In uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he says that there is none righteous, no, not one. In the Psalms, the psalmist says in Psalm 130, Lord, if if you were to count iniquities, who could stand? Jeremiah, the prophet, declares in Jeremiah 17, he says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Listen, we don't have to look too hard at ourselves or look too hard out into the world to realize that though people attempt at times to be good, people are in and of themselves not good. Do we understand that? We we look at the world and it doesn't take too long for us to understand that there's something broken here. There's something that just doesn't function right. And, And if we take a look in at ourselves and we're honest, we realize, oh, there's something broken in me. David understood this. And David understood then that his righteousness, if there's something broken inside of him, his righteousness couldn't come from himself. It had to come from somewhere else. And David acknowledged that it came from the Lord. And he says, Lord, you are my righteousness. Lord, you are my God. I have no good apart from you. Listen, this is good news for us today if we think about it. Just think about it for a second. If your righteousness comes from inside of you, from good things that you do, what happens if you stop doing those good things? Right? If your righteousness is based on something that is good within you, what happens if that something breaks? Then you have no more righteousness. But if your righteousness comes from the living God who gives it to you by faith, this is good news, isn't it? And so the Lord leads his people to hope by helping us to understand that he is our righteousness. We, we are not good in and of ourselves, but it is by his grace that he changes us, that he saves us. That's the first thing that we need to see. Now, I, I said that we're gonna go through these fairly fast, and, and we are. Um, we're gonna go through the first four a little bit more slowly than the last four, so just pace yourself, okay? 
All right, point number two. We gotta get point number two. It's right here in the text. Point number two, the second way that the Lord gives us hope every day is that he encourages us through his people, the church. He encourages us through his people, the church. Take a look down at verse three with me. Notice what David writes in verse three. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's a great verse. That's a verse that helps us to understand the importance of Christian community, of like-minded believers, of people that trust the Lord and walk with the Lord. David says, God, I acknowledge that you are my righteousness, but Lord, I thank you for the saints in the land. They are the excellent ones in whom I delight. Now just imagine, I want you to imagine for a second here, David on the run, maybe hiding out in a cave, maybe seeking shelter, refuge, and he has some people with him, some companions with him, okay, who trust the Lord. David reflecting in this moment where, you know, he's, he's on the run, his life is literally on the line, could be on the line at any moment. Think about the value of trustworthy companions for David at that moment. If we understand that, then we would actually understand a really great illustration and analogy of the Christian life, wouldn't we? We are in a spiritual battle here every single day. How important is it to have brothers and sisters who are like-minded, who are trustworthy, who can pray with us, who can encourage us? You know, I think as David writes these words right here, I think David's actually thinking about um, different relationships with people that have meant so much to him, that have encouraged him, that have helped him so deeply. The one relationship that comes to mind, and maybe he didn't have this in mind when he wrote this, but the one that comes to mind for me is his relationship with Jonathan. David's relationship with Jonathan. You remember, Jonathan was, was whose son? He was, he was whose son? Saul's son. Okay, Saul's son. Good. You guys are getting the answers better than the first service did. So good work, okay? Um, so, so Jonathan was Saul's son, and Saul was the king before David was king. And um, Saul kind of loved David at certain points, but then Saul really hated David at certain points. And uh, Saul tried to kill David on several occasions. And on one of those occasions where David had to flee from Saul, Jonathan who was a very, very close friend to David, came out and actually ministered to David. Um, he actually helped David to escape, to flee, but not only did he help him to escape and flee, the text says that, he, that, that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Isn't that awesome? He strengthened David's hand in God. What does that, what does that mean? I think he came to David and he encouraged David. I think he encouraged him in the Lord. And I think he encouraged him and said, you know what? You're going to be, God's going to take care of you. You are the anointed one of Israel. God is going to put you on the throne. And so I'm going to pray with you. You're going to flee, but God is going to protect you. What a friend. Isn't that awesome? How many of us would want to have a friend like that? Okay. Two, two of us. Good. Okay. Okay. Two. They, great. The rest of us should want a friend like that. Um, okay. No, yes, there were more than just two. I understand. I know I'm just messing with you. All right. Um, but we should all want a friend like Jonathan. In fact, we should all want to be a friend like Jonathan to somebody else. So just think about the importance of Christian community in your walk with the Lord. Think about your, maybe your small group, maybe your men's ministry group, your women's ministry group, your recovery group, uh, or think about other strong Christian relationships that you have in the church or just with friends that are outside of this particular church and think about how other believers have encouraged your heart in the Lord before Praise God for that. That is one of the primary ways that God encourages us in hope is through other believers. He encourages us through his people, the church. As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. When you find yourself in a difficult season like David did, I think that's when you really learn to delight in God's people and the goodness of fellowship with other like-minded believers. David was rejoicing in the Lord at this point that God had put such people in his life. Brothers, sisters, we need to rejoice in the Lord for those relationships in our lives that, that encourage us, that spur us on, that challenge us, that point us to Jesus Christ. Well, that's the second thing. The third thing we find right down in verse four. Verse four. Verse four says this, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. 
Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Well, what do we take away from this verse? Well, there's a lot going on in this verse. I'm going to try to unpack it for you here in just a second. But the first thing that I think we need to take away is, is this, is point number three, is that the Lord, he encourages his people by training us in righteousness. By training us in righteousness. He trains me to love what is right. God trains me to love what is right. Have you ever noticed God doing that in your life before? Training you to love what is good and to love what is right. Uh, parents in the room, do you ever have to do this with your kids when it comes to eating? How many, how many kids would just eat junk food all day if they could? What do parents have to say? Hey, you got to eat your vegetables before you get your ice cream, right? Okay, you got to do this. Well, you're training them to, to eat well and to be, to be healthy in that way. Well, God likewise trains his people in righteousness. He trains us to love what is right. Notice verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god, notice it's a small g, meaning a false god, okay, shall multiply. Well, how does that connect with God training us to love what is right? Well, God trains us to love what is right by showing us the consequences of what happens in our lives when we pursue what is evil. We could say it this way, if you pursue sin, you choose suffering. Do we understand that? There's a cause and effect relationship. If we pursue sin, we are inviting suffering and sorrow into our lives. One pastor said it this way. He said, when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. I think that's a good way to say it. Uh, we say to our children quite often, uh, when you choose to sin, you choose the consequences. And they, they'll say, no, I didn't choose that consequence. I don't like that consequence. Yeah, but when you choose the sin, the consequence comes with it, whether you like it or not. Well, that is actually how God trains his people in righteousness. He, he shows us that when we pursue what is evil, that it invites suffering into our life and into the lives of those around us. That works as a deterrent in our lives to deter us from pursuing what is evil and to lead us to pursue what is right and what is honoring to the Lord. Let me ask you a question here today. How many of us right now at this moment want to increase sorrow and suffering in our lives? Hand up. Okay, hand up real high, real high if you, just, if you want to increase your sorrow and suffering in your life right now. Good, okay, you guys actually are paying attention. This is good, okay. I couldn't get first service with that either. I tried, um, but it didn't work. Okay, so, so none of us want to increase the sorrow and suffering in our lives right now. Okay, good. But when we choose to step outside of God's revealed will for our life, we are choosing to increase sorrow and suffering in our own lives. Do we understand that? So none of us would, not one of us in this room would say, yeah, I want to do that. I want to invite sorrow and suffering into my life right now. But when we choose to turn away from the Lord, to disobey the Lord, we are choosing to invite sorrow and suffering into our lives. And so if you secretly are just a little bit shy about this and you really want to invite sorrow and suffering into your lives, but you didn't want to put your hand up too high because your neighbor might have saw it, um, I just want to give you five sorrow multipliers right now um, that, that if you just put these things into practice, you will bring a lot of sorrow and a lot of suffering into your life and into the life of those people that know you well. Okay, five sorrow multipliers. This list could also be called AKA don't do this. Um, we'll, we'll go with that. So five sorrow multipliers. The first one is materialism. Number one, if you want more sorrow and suffering in your life, just pursue materialism. Well, what is materialism? Materialism says the more I have, the happier I will be. That's the lie of materialism. The reality of materialism is the more I have, the more I want, the more discontent I actually am. That's the reality of materialism. So if you want to fill your life with sorrow and suffering, just, you know, pursue materialism more than anything else. Pursue the false god of materialism. Shun the true living God who can bring peace and joy. Pursue materialism and you will invite sorrow and suffering into your life. And the second thing, the second thing 
is people-pleasing. Striving to please people more than you would strive to please God. Striving to be right in the eyes of men and women more than you would strive to be right in the eyes of God. People-pleasing. People-pleasing, the motto of people-pleasing really says, my life goal is to please people and to find my sense of worth in what they think about me. Listen, if you're a parent of teenagers here in the room, this is probably a conversation that you've had with them on several occasions or you have to have with them often. We all need these conversations. Adults, though, we're not immune to this either. We can fall into it very, very easily, striving to please people and to seek our sense of worth from what other people think about us. If you, stri- if you live to please people, you will invite a world of sorrow and suffering into your life. Here's the third one. The third one is just general discontentment. General discontentment. You know, I'm just discontent with, with life and with everything in life. I'm just, I'm grumpy and I'm happy being grumpy and no one can ever challenge me about my grumpiness or else I'll get really grumpy with them because I'm happy being grumpy. Discontentment. <laughs> How many of us have been there? I'm like every morning between the hours of 6.30 and 9, like, <laughs> I, But by the grace of God, it would be, yes. Um, Okay, so discontentment, discontentment. I am not an early morning person, by the way. Um, I do it, but just don't talk to me. Um, (laughs) You laugh, but it's true. Lord, sanctify me. Um, But discontentment, just, you know, the the slogan of discontentment is really, if, if I just had blank, my life would be good. My life would be perfect. My life would be so much better. But the problem with discontentment is you strive and strive and strive to achieve blank, which is generally, if you really look at it, is unattainable, completely unattainable in this world. But when you do attain some form of it, it is not good enough. It's never enough. It's always empty and it's not satisfying. And then you become more discontent in your dissatisfaction with what that thing did not achieve. Do you follow with me? Essentially, what you've done is you've taken that thing, that blank, and you've given it a small g, godlike status. You've bowed down before it, you've given yourself to it, and it has let you down. That's discontentment. The fourth thing, the fourth way to invite a world of sorrow into your life is to pursue self-centeredness. Make everything in your life and this world revolve around you. Just be self-centered in everything. Self-centered in your relationships. Um, Not willing to sacrifice. Always willing to exalt yourself in every situation. Just pursue that and you will invite a world of sorrow into your own life, but also into the lives of those in your family and the people that are around you. Fifth and finally, the last way that I have down, there's many more. These are just ones that came to mind for me. But the fifth way to invite sorrow into your life is to pursue idolatry, to pursue idolatry. You think, that's weird. That's a weird one to say. Like, you know, we don't really have shrines with idols here and there. That's not like a big thing in our culture today, is it? I guess it is in some places, but not really here. Well, that's not what I mean. Um, An idol is not necessarily an object always. We have idols of our hearts, don't we? Things that we exalt to a God-like status that we, in one way or another, either through our time, our talent, our treasure, just what we spend on it, what we pursue it with, the amount of desire we put behind it, we exalt it to the place of God. And in one sense or another, we worship it. Although we wouldn't call it that, that's what's happening. Idolatry. Well, that's actually what David is hitting here in this verse when he says the words, the sorrows of those who run after another God, a false God, will be multiplied. David is going right after idolatry, exalting anything to the place of God. That, that, will, that will add sorrow and add suffering to your life, guaranteed, idolatry. But let's just kind of dig down on this one a little bit. Now, we don't have time to dive into it real deep because we would just run out of time. That'd be the whole message and multiple messages. But let's just think for for 20 seconds right now about idolatry. Just quickly, quickly. Think about idolatry, what it means, 
or what an act of idolatry is, what it means to be an idolater today, okay? What does it mean? Well, I want you to think about this. In every single act of disobedience towards the Lord, okay, every single act of disobedience towards the Lord, what are we actually saying? So when God says, do this, and I say, no, I'm not doing this, I am doing this instead, what am I actually saying in that? I am actually saying in that, God, who are you? How dare you tell me what to do? You are not God. I am God, and so I am doing this. What is that? That is idolatry. That is self-idolatry. That's what that is, okay? How often do we idolize people? How often do we idolize celebrities? How often do we idolize money? How often do we idolize an easy life? All of these sorts of things become idols of our heart that we may not physically bow down to, but we bow our heart to. They take the place of God in our heart, and they bring a world of sorrow into our life. And so how do we respond today? Um, how do we respond to a culture around us that is just full of idolatry? How do we respond? Well, two things. First of all, we remember that the word of God says that the sorrows of those who run after another God will be multiplied. So our culture pursuing idolatry just rampantly today, their sorrows will be multiplied. We remember that. We remember that if we go in that direction with our culture today and we join in their idolatries, our sorrows, my sorrows would be multiplied. Then, secondly, we reject their idolatries. We reject their idolatries. That's what David says right here. Notice he says, first of all, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Then, he says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. In other words, David says, hey, listen, this is the way that the culture is going. I want no part of it. I'm not doing that. I'm not going that way. I'm not going to be associated with that. I'm not going to join in their festivities. Okay, the, the offering of blood I will not pour out. That was a, a uh, idolatrous cultural practice in David's day. David says, nope, I don't want anything to do with that. And he says, I'm not even going to take the name of their false gods on my lips. I am going to completely separate myself from this. That's how we respond. We respond by remembering that the sorrows of those who run after another God will be multiplied, and then we reject their idolatries, and we stand firm in the truth of the living God. That's how we respond. Brothers, sisters, the solution today to escaping idolatry is ultimately found in this very simple, but very, at times very, very challenging truth. We reject idolatry by embracing the living God. We reject idolatry by embracing, by radically embracing the living God in everything. You say, well, hold on a second. You want me to radically embrace this God that you're telling me about in everything? How do I know I can trust him? How, how, do, how do I know that? Well, that's a really great, great question. Great question. In fact, that's the next question that David seeks to answer in this text for us, is how do we know that we can actually trust him? Let's take a look down at verse five. Take a look at verse five. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. So David says, I reject the idolatries around me. I'm not gonna go there. But he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Listen, there's a lot that we need to take away from this verse, but the first thing that we need to take away, I think the most important thing, is that we need to understand that it is God's sovereign care in our lives that leads us to trust him. It's knowing that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that he is who he says he is, that he is completely trustworthy because he has proven himself over and over again. That leads us to trust him. So point four, his sovereign care teaches me to trust him. God's sovereign care teaches me what it means to trust him. God's sovereign care in my life helps me to trust him because he's trustworthy. You say, well, I'm not sure that God is sovereign over all things when I look out at the world today. Well, I wish we had time to unpack that a little bit more, but I want to ask you just a really, really simple question in relation to that. I, I'm totally sure God is sovereign when I look out at the world today. 
okay? Totally sure he's sovereign because somehow through all of this mess, he is working out his plan and his kingdom in a way that would blow all of our minds. I'm totally sure. But I wanna ask you one question. Does it give you more confidence and more hope um, to question whether God is sovereign? What would you rather live in? Would you rather live in a world where God is sovereign or God is not sovereign? Just think about it for a second. I'd rather live in a world where God is sovereign, okay? Because a world where God is not sovereign, that he is not over all things, is absolutely terrifying. Why is it terrifying? Because you have no assurance of anything at that point. How can you trust that he's gonna come through on his promises if he's not actually sovereign, if he's not in control, if he's not behind the scenes working all things out for the good of his people in Christ Jesus? And so I just step back from that and I say, Try to imagine a world where God is not sovereign. That's a terrifying reality. That's why the scripture encourages us over and over again to put our complete trust in the Lord. He is absolutely trustworthy in everything. That's why the scriptures encourage us with such verses like Philippians chapter one, verse six, that tells us that he who started the good work in us will carry it on till the day of completion. How can the Bible say that? Because God is sovereign, because God is trustworthy, because every promise that he has given us is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That is good news, brothers and sisters, isn't it? That's a great reason to hope in the Lord, because he is over all things, because he is working in the midst of things. Even right now, as we look out at the world and we see chaos, God is working something that our minds can't fully comprehend that will ultimately lead to his glory and his exaltation. Praise God. And so his sovereign care teaches me to trust. That's the first thing we need to see in this verse. The other thing that we need to see is that God is gracious to us even when it may not appear so. God is gracious to us even when it may not appear so. In verse six, there's a metaphor about being content in the Lord. Okay, verse six, let's just look back to it again quickly. Verse six, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There's a metaphor here that is applied to the people of Israel. When the people of Israel came in and occupied the promised land, God essentially divided up the land according to tribe, according to clan, and according to family. Now, I would imagine that there were people in that day that looked over at their neighbor's property and thought, oh, man, he got a great deal. I got a terrible deal. Like, he got the corner lot, and I got this skinny little lot that's just sandwiched in between these two giant skyscrapers. They didn't have those in that day. But anyway, um, so, so I'd imagine that there were people that were tempted to be discontent with the portion that was given. And David encourages the people of Israel by pointing them back to when God brought them into the land for how they were supposed to respond, that the lines, the boundary lines, the allotment lines have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And so he takes that metaphor, that illustration, and then he begins to, he applies it to our lives. So as we look at our lives, maybe we're like the people of Israel who are tempted to look at somebody else's boundary line, somebody else's life, and be like, oh, they've got it way better than me. God just gave them so much more than me. God was so much more gracious to them. And the point here is that we should look at our own life, and we should cultivate thankfulness in our own life. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your kindness towards me. There are hard things, God, in my life. But even in the middle of those, you're working, you're redeeming, you're strengthening me, you're growing me in Jesus Christ, and I am thankful. I'm very thankful for that. Brothers, sisters, I've had situations in my life that if given the choice, I wouldn't go back there and do it again. That hurtful, that hard, that painful. But also given the choice, I would not sacrifice what I've learned and how I've grown as a result of that, even if I had to go back and do it again. That's a weird place to be in. You're like, I, I wouldn't do that again if you paid me all the money in the world. But if it meant that I had to give up all of the things that I've learned in the way that God has grown me because of his grace, I would do it again. That would be really hard. 
Listen, God trains us in righteousness in those situations. He teaches us that he is sovereign. He shows us his steadfast love and control, and he teaches us that the inheritance, the life that he has given us is a beautiful inheritance, that he is good in the hard things, and he's good in the easy things, and he's to be praised in all seasons. That's a great illustration for our lives here. But listen, there's another illustration right here in this verse for us. I said earlier that this psalm was, was written when David was on the run. The psalm was written when David was on the run. He was fleeing from an enemy. His life was being threatened. He was possibly hiding in caves. He was no doubt hiding out in one way or another, but he was on the run. And during that time on the run, I just want you to kind of think and imagine what David was thinking, what David was doing while he was on the run. And how it could be possible for him to sit down with a pen, a quill, whatever it was, and write the words, the lines have fallen for me in beautiful places or in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. How can he say this? Like, he's on the run. His life is being pursued, okay? He, he may lose his physical life the next day. He doesn't fully know. And he sits down with a quill in his hand either while he's on the run or right after he's on the run, and he says, Lord, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, the inheritance I have, which includes the present suffering of being on the run, being chased by my enemies, is part of my beautiful inheritance. I read that, and I just think, wow, David grasps something that I don't fully grasp. Any of us feel that? Any of us understand that? Anybody resonate with that? Yeah, he understands something about God's goodness in hard times that I don't fully grasp. You know, we, we could easily insert into what's going on in David's life here. We could say, David, like, come on, reality check, man. Like, okay, you're on the run. And like, just two weeks ago, before you went on the run, Saul threw a spear at you and tried to pin you to the wall with it. Like, what do you mean? You know, you're in a good place right now. Well, David was in a good place right then because he knew that he was secure in the hand of the Lord, because he was trusting in the Lord fully, because he was rejoicing in the Lord through the difficult seasons. And he knew that he could ultimately trust the Lord because the Lord was sovereign over all things. Listen, brothers and sisters, that is a really good place to be. It's a really good place to be. Even in the hardest things, God is still working. God is still working out all things for our ultimate eternal good, guiding us, giving us counsel, and directing our steps in Jesus Christ. And we can be assured of that. Praise God. Praise God. And so what do you do with that? I think with a passage like this, you, you take it to the Lord and you just ask the Lord, Lord, would you build this into my life? Would you build into my life a better understanding of what it means to trust you and to rejoice in you during difficult days and difficult seasons? All right, that was the fourth thing. I said that the next ones are gonna go a lot quicker. Yes, they are. Here we go. Here's the fifth thing. Okay, the fifth way that God encourages his people to hope in him. Number five, he guides us with his wisdom and counsel. He guides us with his wisdom and counsel. And we see this right here in verse seven. Take a look down at verse seven with me. David writes, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. There's much that we could say about this, but the first thing that we need to understand is that David grasped that it was God who gave wisdom and counsel and direction in difficult situations. No doubt, while David was on the run, he was figuring out, trying to figure out, which way do I go next? Which way is the enemy coming? And it was God who was guiding him and leading him in those moments, in those situations. The New Testament tells us so clearly in James chapter 1, verse 5, that if anyone... If any one of God's people lacks wisdom, let him go to God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. In other words, if you're in a situation in your life where you need wisdom that surpasses wisdom that you have, where do you go to get it? Do you Google it up? Do you just, you know, phone a friend? Maybe those things can be helpful to one degree or another, but predominantly the teaching of the entire Bible is that we would run to God with it, that we would take the matter, we would put it before God, we would lay it out and we would say, Lord, what do you want me to do in this? Lord, what do you want me to do in this? But God gives us 
Great instruction through his word, but then he also gives us instruction through his Holy Spirit. I want you to notice this. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, it says in verse 7. In the night, also my heart instructs me. A great motto for life is don't trust your heart, okay? I know that would go contrary to everything written in country music these days, um, but don't trust your heart, okay? It's very biblical, don't trust your heart. But do trust the leading of the Holy Spirit, Okay, why? Because the moment, the day that you believed in Jesus Christ, he took his Holy Spirit and put his Holy Spirit in you. Okay, he put his Holy Spirit in you. Where do you find that? Well, you find that right in Ephesians chapter one. It talks all about that, that you're given the Holy Spirit on the first day that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, his Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, according to John 14 and 16, go check it out yourself this afternoon, his Holy Spirit is given to us to guide us into truth and to magnify and glorify Jesus. And according to James chapter one, if we struggle with wisdom and counsel in a situation, we are to go to God who will give faithfully to us, who will lead us in the truth. Well, David, David, as the anointed king of Israel, it's, it's recounted in scripture that uh, David was given the Holy Spirit. He was given the Holy Spirit to lead the people of God, the people of Israel. He was given the Spirit of God. And so when David says here, my heart instructs me, I think what David really understands is that it is God who is leading him through the internal leading of the Holy Spirit, through the instruction of the Holy Spirit. David's not just relying on his own human sense. He's not doing that. He's relying on the Lord to lead him. So what do we do? We go to the Lord when we're in a difficult situation. We pursue the Lord. We ask the Lord, Lord, what would you want me to do with this? I take this issue, this matter, this difficult thing. I set it before you. God, would you guide me according to your word? Because there's going to be principles in your word that will apply to this situation. God, would you guide me through the leading of your Holy Spirit? God, as I go to a couple other mature believers in Jesus Christ, and I ask for your counsel, would you speak clearly through them? Would it be tied to your word? And God, would you guide me? Would you give me confirmation in what you want me to do? I believe that's what David did in his life. And I believe that it was in those moments when he was on the run, where God trained him in doing that in a very unique and powerful way that came to lead him very powerfully later on in his life. I want us to look down now, though, to verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 say this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Point number six is that God, his constant presence is our confidence. God encourages us in hope because his constant presence is our confidence. Our confidence is found in the fact that the Lord will never leave us or never forsake us. We can trust that. We can bank on that. We already quoted Philippians 1 verse 6 um, earlier in in the service, but it's great to quote it right now. Philippians 1 verse 6 tells us that the Lord will complete the good work that he has started in us as believers in Christ. We can bank on him for that. We can trust the Lord because his constant presence is with us. Philippians 4 is another passage that is so relevant here. We just heard this recently. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, listen, do not be anxious in anything but in everything with prayer and supplication. But right before that, just before that, he says this little phrase, the Lord is at hand. The Lord's at hand. Just imagine that. Just reach out your arm. Just reach out your arm. Don't bonk your neighbor. Reach out your arm, okay? Nobody's doing it, okay? I'm serious. Reach out your arm. Come on, reach out your arm, okay? There we go, good, okay, all right, good. Okay, you're reaching out your hand. When Paul says that in Philippians 4, the picture there, I, I believe, is that God is never further away than that. It's not to say God is that far away. It's that he, he's at hand. He's at hand. He's all around you. You cannot escape his presence. You cannot get away from him. He's there. And so if God is at hand, what reason do we have to be anxious? We, we submit to him in everything with prayer and supplication. We take everything and we, we take it and make it known to him because he's at hand, because he's not far away. Listen, brothers, sisters, that is such an encouragement for us, isn't it? Such a re- reason for hope 
God is not far away. He's not distant. He's not unconcerned. He's not unable to intercede. He is able and he's near. He cares. He's present and he's with us. Praise God. Praise God. His constant presence is my confidence. Here's the seventh thing. The seventh thing, we find it in verse 10. The seventh thing is that he guards my soul unto salvation. He guards my soul unto salvation. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. God guards our soul unto salvation. Now, the really amazing thing about this particular verse is that this verse is picked up by the New Testament authors. It's picked up by Peter and by the Apostle Paul, and it is applied to Jesus Christ. So Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2.27, quotes this verse and applies it specifically to Jesus Christ. So David writes this verse maybe knowing that he was being prophetic at the time, maybe not knowing, maybe applying it to his specific situation, that he's on the run, but he's the Holy One of Israel. He's the anointed King of Israel, and God's not going to allow him to suffer corruption. But the New Testament authors, through the guiding of the Holy Spirit, pick this up, and they apply it perfectly to Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of this verse is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, who came down, who gave his life on the cross for us, went into the grave, did not suffer corruption. Why? Because out of that grave, he rose on the third day, triumphant over sin, over death, over the grave. Praise God. And Peter and Paul apply this to Jesus Christ. But listen, in scripture, we learn that Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, his ascension into glory, that he is the first fruits of the resurrection the first fruits of the ascension. He's the the older brother, in a sense, that goes before us. As he died and went into the grave and then was resurrected in the power of God, raised from the grave, and as he ascended and was in heaven, we too have that same hope, brothers and sisters, don't we? Don't we have that same hope? That though we will physically perish, we will be raised one day. Though we physically perish and are raised, we will be lifted up to glory. We will be in glory for all of eternity with the Lord. That is awesome news, isn't it? So Jesus did not suffer corruption. He died, but he was raised. Likewise, us who trust in Jesus Christ will not suffer ultimate corruption. We will be raised and we will be with him in glory. Christ is our forerunner. He has gone ahead of us. He died and he rose. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He was, as he was raised to the newness of life, so also we will be raised. Praise God. That's good news. Okay, if that doesn't fill up your hope tank a little bit today, I don't know what will. Okay, God is sovereign. God is trustworthy. <laughs> wow, he's training me in righteousness even through the hard things. And hey, listen, at the end of it, Though I may die physically, I'm going to be raised. I'm going to be with the Lord in glory for all of eternity. Oh, wait, that's the next point. We we went to that one too soon. Okay, so let's go there right now. All right, point number eight. Here it is right here. We're going to see the Lord in glory. We're going to see the Lord in glory. Let me say it again. We're going to see the Lord in glory. That's awesome. That changes everything. And when we see him... The scriptures say we will be made like him. Listen, point number eight, he satisfies me with the fullness of his joy forevermore. He satisfies me with the fullness of his joy forevermore. Notice what it says in verse 11. David says, Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, today, In Christ Jesus, God wants to satisfy you with the fullness of his presence and with his joy. He wants you to delight in Jesus Christ today. He doesn't want you just to kind of walk through life discontent, ho-hum, downcast all the time. He wants you to rejoice in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. Why? Because when you rejoice and you delight in Jesus Christ, you pursue him with everything that you have. And he's glorified in you. David understood this, that it was God who made known to us the path of life, and that in his presence there was fullness of joy and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Listen, brothers and sisters, 
If you wanna know true satisfaction in this life, if you wanna know true joy in this life, you need to know Jesus Christ. You need to know Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, there are a lot of earthly pleasures that you may have in this life that last for a little season, that are kinda like the daffodils that are out right now, but you get a couple hot days and they fade. But if you know Jesus Christ, joy lasts for all of eternity. Though you walk through trials, though you walk through hard things, though the world stands against you most of the time in this life, you have an eternal seat in God's presence in glory forever and evermore. That is awesome. What would you trade for that? I wouldn't trade anything for that. I love what Romans chapter eight, verse 32 says. It's such a great verse. It talks about um, God who, um, his, his, he allowed his son to suffer for us and he says, if God would give up his own son Christ, how will he not also give us all things with him in glory forevermore? Bad paraphrase. Look it up yourself today. Romans 8, 32. That's it. So God leads his people in hope by giving us perspective that we're gonna spend eternity with him because of Jesus Christ. And so today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today's the day. Trust him today for the first time. He's absolutely trustworthy. What does it mean to do that? It just simply means admit the fact that there's nothing good in you. Okay, that's where we started. And that all goodness is in Jesus Christ, that he is our righteousness. And just admit the fact that you need a savior. Invite him, invite him to save you from your sin and then rejoice in him. If you have believed in Jesus Christ and if you're walking with Jesus Christ right now, today's a great day to rejoice in Jesus Christ, isn't it? Praise God for the hope that he gives us. Let's praise him, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your abundant goodness to us in your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection that we have because Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and gone to the grave for us and because he has been raised up. God, we thank you that we can trust that you are sovereign over all things, that you are sovereign even in the hard things that we encounter in this life. Lord, we pray that today, Lord, you would reset our perspective. Help us to look to Jesus, to rejoice in him, to trust him through the hard things but to walk with him, delighting in him. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.